Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. I'm Tom Edwards. Today's programme is all about provenance. We'll meet a business leader championing sustainability in the world of precious metals by setting a gold standard in responsible sourcing and in social engagement. I think there's an alignment in lots of industries between kind of doing the right thing and doing the more profitable thing. I think it's a, it's quite a nice nuance of the way consumerism seems to be moving. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Charlie Betts is the managing director of the Betts Group, not only his family's business for nine generations since 1760, but one of the oldest continuously operating precious metal refiners and traders anywhere. Charlie is also, alongside brother Dan, the co-founder of Single Mine Origin, or SMO Gold, an initiative to bring fully traceable, responsibly sourced gold throughout the jewellery and investment markets in a way that's both affordable and scalable. Charlie stopped by Midori House to talk about the responsible sourcing of precious metals and why he's so passionate about getting the whole industry to actively embrace the idea of exploring the origins of their gold. Charlie began by telling me what the Betts Group is all about. So the Betts Group is the oldest refiner and bullion dealer in the UK. So essentially we refine precious metals and then we supply the jewellery trade predominantly in the UK with, with products, be that sheet, wire, wedding ring, blanks. So we're dealing with sort of B2B predominantly rather than customers. And talk to me about your work and your role, because I know your brother still works, of course, in, in, in the business as well. Was this one of those family concerns where there was never really going to be any other way and, you know, you were sort of prepared for, <laughs> for for that? Or is it one of those other stories where, you know, you went and did a few other things, but the kind of the siren song drew you back? Tell me a bit about your journey. Uh, I'm going to say it's somewhere between the two, if I'm totally <laughs> honest, Tom. So I left university and went and worked in the city for a little while for bearings. And I wasn't totally sure I was going to join the family business or I, I knew it was an option. And it was actually Dan, my brother, who kind of persuaded me to join the business back in 2004, which was which was cool um, because I think I'd, you know, having been a couple of years in the, in the city, putting in long hours and not necessarily feeling like I was changing anything in a relatively small family business, you feel like everything you do has impact and you're kind of master of your own destiny, which I, I love. So Dan kind of persuaded me to join and then two years later left um hopefully nothing to do with me but he <laughs> he he left to set up a mining business called hummingbird resources which went on to list on the london exchange in 2010 and started producing gold in 2017 so it's been an, a, an amazing journey on that side from exploring in the sort of jungle in liberia through to being a pretty serious world gold council member producing gold and tell me about i guess the the, the shifting narrative if we look at say the conversation around sustainability and there's probably I'm sure you have those conversations where as soon as people hear you talk about gold or mining or sustainability they're going to come in with a lot of preconceived ideas and make a lot of assumptions probably unhelpfully how much has the discussions both within and without the business changed because it feels like over the last what 10-15 years or actually probably pretty much throughout your whole time with the company that's a discussion that is 
become so much more more important. How much has the conversation shifted, Charlie, just since you joined the company? It's only a couple of decades ago. Mm-hmm. And now it's obviously moved on. I'm sure the advance in terms of what you can do yes. and the impact you can have has changed so much. But tell us a bit about how the conversation's changed just in the, in the last yeah, 20 years. Yeah, the, the conversation's moving at quite an amazingly rapid rate, I would say. I think suddenly having been trying to drive kind of responsible sourcing for a while, suddenly that's starting to flip on its head. And I think jewelers are being approached by consumers saying, you know, what's the provenance of your material, your your gold or your or your diamonds? And so I think jewelers are increasingly having to be engaged mm. with understanding their supply chain and wanting to be, which is which is great. So from our perspective, we also really interested in those kind of preconceptions around sustainability. So I think there is a kind of view in the market that artisanal gold is always good, that large-scale corporate gold is evil, and that, you know, recycled is is good. And I think there is so much complexity and nuance within each of those spaces. And, and, and the reason Dan and I set up Single Mine Origin to a large part was to challenge that thinking and to shine a bit of light and transparency on those supply chains. So, you know, our view is large-scale mining if it's done right, there are some unbelievable progressive corporate citizens who are transforming the areas they're working with in a, in a super positive way. And that's great. And so if we can trace gold to those sources and drive those kind of standards within the mining industry, that excites us. And within artisanal, again, I'm a big supporter of things like Fair Trade and Fair Mind who are trying to put structure and health and safety and investment around artisanal sources. But it's not, you know, it's a really problematic area there is lots of you know environmental impacts you know child labor if you're not careful artisanal sourcing is hugely problematic so it's so complicated and it's funny what you said that thing about yet actually there's quite a lot more nuance to this and it's like you think of so many issues where there's the sort of soapbox campaigner and they don't necessarily have the nuance Tell me how difficult it is then. So that's the the idea, I guess, of Esmo Gold, Single Mine Origin Gold. It's pretty unique, or certainly it was unique in 2017. Maybe mm-hmm. you've got some other reasonably early adopters who followed in your footsteps. This is about responsible sourcing. It's about seeing that point, full traceability, yeah. understanding that provenance. How hard is it to deliver? It's easy to set out to do it. How difficult is it actually to realise that? It's been difficult. You know, it's not something you can do overnight. So we have kind of three pillars i would say one is fully traceable so most gold goes into a big swiss refiner and it gets commingled and at that point you cannot trace it back to a single source and to me if you want proper accountability you have to have that traceability so we've said from day one this gold has to be segregated we're going to send in an auditor every time to make sure it's segregated and we want absolute traceability then it needs to be a responsible source and that's a whole ethical minefield. So we don't want to be the judge of that. So we use independent standards like the World Gold Council's responsible gold mining principles. So a mine has to be independently audited to say, you know, it's hitting kind of 51 different criteria for being a responsible source, whether that's social investment or whether it's international cyanide management code compliance, things like that. And then the third one, which I think is the most important one in many ways is transparency. So we want to work with people who are open about what they're doing, not trying to hide anything. We're not saying these mines are going to be perfect because no mine's perfect. But if they're sharing ESG data with us on a kind of quarterly basis, how many you know grams of 
carbon per ounce of gold they're using? What's their social spend per ounce of gold? If you can start to measure and benchmark that and have transparency about that, I think that's inevitably going to drive progress. Really interesting. We were talking about you know how the conversations moved on, I guess, in the consumer demography. With your partners, has it shifted from a point where, I don't know, in 2017, and they're like, oh, God, Charlie and Dan are coming. You know, this is going to be tough. And are they now saying, we're really encouraged by the demands you've made of us because we're a better business, we're a more effective and efficient business, and actually more people are having that conversation. Has that shifted your relationship with your partners in, in, in the businesses? Yes. Yeah, I think in a word, it has shifted. We're, I, I definitely feel like we're pushing on a, a slightly more open door than we were a few years ago. And that goes for single one origin and, and other kind of traceable sources of gold. I think it's something that there's clearly a demand for and, and brands, you know, they want to be able to engage with this stuff and answer those questions. And But also, particularly when you're at the kind of bigger end of the jewellery you know, jewellery brands, they have extremely complex supply chains. I guess they'd love you to think everything was made in an atelier on the top floor in Paris. But the reality is life's not quite that simple. And most brands have complex manufacturing, sometimes globally, you know, different places. And so they can have the aspiration to have SMO gold or other traceable gold. But actually implementing that can be a sort of multi-year process for brands. And so we try and help them and say, look, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Start by doing something, get the easy wins under your belt, and then we can try and help them to tie up the loose ends, really. It's interesting. A lot of the time when there's narratives like this about where there's a big challenge across the whole industry, we can't try and push everything to the same endpoint, exactly as you said. You have to take the wins where you can get them. But is it plausible is it feasible to look at say if we if we look at gold specifically can that whole sector get to a point where all gold has that kind of provenance or is this one of these things where for good or bad it just it's the scale is too big the complexities are too varied to deliver that or is it a thing where we can get it's got like energy provision you know in the end can it be done completely can we have a whole market that reaches these standards or not really i think a whole market is is difficult but i think an enormously higher percentage of the market than we're at now can be. So we're with Single One Origin, we're working with very large corporate players who are, you know, they're producing a significant percentage of the world's gold. So if more and more big mines start to reach those responsibility standards and we can segregate and trace those sources, that's great. There's a lot of work being done around recycling because, you know, I have a bit of a bugbear with brands saying we use recycled and thinking they're washing their hands of anything, any other questions on their supply chain, because gold is ultimately endlessly recycled. It's been, you know, we've been doing it for 260 years. People don't throw gold away. And so you're not kind of making a big macro sustainability gain by just saying, yeah, we use recycled gold. It's been sort of 25 to 30% of global gold supply for decades, right? Nothing's changing on that front. So I get a, a bit cross about, you know, Everyone wants to talk about sustainability and saying we just use recycled and we're not sourcing any virgin material. To me, it's a kind of get out of jail. So it's, it's slightly, it's slightly disingenuous. It when you bit. are in possession of all the facts, as of course you are, Charlie. <laughs> Tell me a bit. If we take a step back, so we talk about Bets Group. Obviously, SMO Gold now since 2017. This uh, JV with your brother's, with your brother's own company. If we look at Bets Group as an overall concern, what proportion of the business, what amount of the time is spent on the different things that you do? Just give us a quick sketch so people can kind of understand um, what you're presiding over. 
So really, we're, I guess, as a business, we're split kind of 50-50 between refining and manufacturing. So the sheet wire, wedding rings, and we're very much focused on the UK market. And I would say within Bet's group, it's a pretty even split. In my t- in terms of my time, probably 80% of it's spent on SMO and developing other products. You know, so we developed a product of um, known provenance recycled silver two years ago, which I'm you know, really pleased with, and that's growing. I think I feel like I've had a a useful and successful day if I've managed to spend my time thinking about the next step rather than fighting the many, many fires. (laughs) Well, I love several things about that. One, though, is, and I'm endlessly fascinated by this when I talk to people who are running companies with provenance and with heritage and with story, and especially if it's a family business, is it a tension, Charlie, between sort of honouring the past and being the steward of a brand Mm. with that zeal and that drive to find new markets, develop new products. Are you conscious of those two influences or actually are they not in in opposition? They're not in tension. I don't think they're in tension. I'm I'm definitely conscious of those influences and we're proud, you know, we're proud of the heritage of the brand. From a personal perspective, I don't think I'd be that excited to be just doing the same thing that we've been doing for 260 years. And I think... To me, this is why SMO was such an exciting project for me, because it was a a real step into the unknown, setting this up, being challenged on it. Could we deliver it? And it feels like, you know, we're combining that heritage with doing something new. And it has that kind of startup mentality, which I, I like and I think is exciting. I like a 266-year-old startup. That's a, that's, a good, that's a good concept. Well, look, you alluded to the product as well. And actually, we were chatting before we started taping about this was actually the product that I had was reading about that intrigued me, which is this, again, silver product, I guess yeah. you'd, you'd call it. And its origins are super interesting. Just, again, give us the one-liner about how it kind of came about. Yeah, so, well, so, again, silver is recycled silver, but it's recycled from known provenance of X-ray film from, you know, medical usage, so from hospitals. So we've been recovering silver from X-ray film for quite a long time. But I mean, perhaps being a bit thick, I didn't really join, you know, I didn't join the dots. So we'd recycle this silver and it would kind of go in with all our other recycled jewellery or or whatever else and just be sold onto the market. And there's just this increasing clamour within the jewellery market for known provenance recycled products, but also something that was genuinely recycled, something that was going to waste. So a lot of x-ray film was either being incinerated or being sent to landfill or it was being kept absolutely indefinitely in sort of storage companies charging the NHS a fortune for keeping records that really should have been destroyed years ago. And so we can go to an NHS trust and we can say, look, we'll take this off the shelf for you. You won't have to pay ongoing storage fees. We'll recover the silver from it. We'll pay you a rebate for the silver value and we'll recycle the plastic and the cardboard. And it feels like a a kind of win on every level. And then we just join the last dot, which is then taking that silver from that process, which is an electrolytic process. And we just segregated that through the refining process back to fine silver. And then we can sell it as again silver. And, you know, we've done a big collaboration with the Royal Mint on that. So they have a a sort of fledgling jewellery brand, which is all their silver is is our medical x-ray film, which is really cool. It's amazing. And I guess it's one of these things that like a lot of very good ideas, it seems simple. Yeah. Because often if we talk about certainly recycling or repurposing materials, one of the issues is prohibitive cost and complexity. So certainly with things like plastics, mm. to break it down to all the constituent actual reusable parts often 
prohibitively expensive and so it doesn't happen or it can't happen. Give us an idea of what it takes, you know, how many x-rays. I'm sure people are thinking, well, hang on a minute, how much silver is there yeah. in a single... Just, just roughly so, so we can kind of get our heads yeah, around it. I mean, a lot is the honest answer. We have, you know, we tend to deal in tonnes of x-ray film. So you'll go to an archive and you'll be collecting 10 tonnes maybe of x-ray film. And then we'll have teams of people in our factory who are then checking that, making sure it's old enough that it can be destroyed. And we're not, you know, because hospitals obviously have to be very careful about data protection and keeping those records. And then it's stripping it. So you're separating the paper, the cardboard. And then there's a, a kind of not complicated, but quite involved chemical process to extract the silver from that. And then it's an electroplating process. And then there's a refining process. So it is, it is involved. And when you have to have really detailed record keeping and segregation through that, it does add a little bit of cost. But with all these things, the more scale you get, actually the, the costs do come down. And that's mm. you know, sort of jumping back onto the gold side with single mine origin. The beauty of it is because we're working at scale, we're refining really big batches of gold in segregation. Actually, those additional costs are pretty minimal. So when we're selling wedding rings, say, to the jewellery trade, we don't charge any premium at all for single mine origin for giving our customers something pretty amazing with sort of QR code, which they can trace the gold all the way back to the mine. And we're not having to charge any more of that because we've got to that economy of scale. So that's where I think these things can work. And where it's difficult is when you start and you're just doing a tiny little batch and you're putting in all that work to segregate it and make sure there's a really robust chain of custody, you do have to absorb a, a bit of cost. Mm. But I like I like your comment that it's, you know, the, the sort of simple ideas that because it I come up against that a lot. You think, what, why didn't I think of that before? I, I said it sounded simple, <laughs> the way you <laughs> said it. Is, it. I it don't is think simple. it is. is it really? but, so, but that intrigues me. So do I understand that correctly, Charlie? You're saying you don't charge a premium. Presumably you could charge a premium, but you don't charge a premium because you have the economy of scale. And what also you want to make the point that this is the way it could and should be done? Yeah, so we would, if we're selling, you know, there is additional cost in our supply chain because we have to pay for audit and segregation and, and so on. And we have, a, you know, a lot of work kind of documenting that. So if we're selling fine gold grain, which is the kind of gold straight out of the refinery at its purest form, there's a very small premium on that because otherwise we'd lose money every time we sold it. But once you start to get to a semi-fabricated or fabricated product like a wedding ring blank, we've taken the view that, you know, we can absorb that you say you're talking about maybe 2% extra cost in the supply chain, we would rather absorb that so that in a way our customers have no good reason not to buy that product. So I think it gives us a competitive advantage that we have a product that is responsibly sourced, that is fully traceable, and, and our customers can use that and increasingly do use that kind of marketing element about, you know, it's really nice for a jeweler to be able to say, look, here's an engagement ring and on the invoice, here's a QR code and you can look right through the supply chain and learn about a mine in the Ivory Coast where your gold was sourced and learn about in as much detail as you want, what social projects have they invested in there? What are they doing about end of life planning for the mine in terms of environmental impact, reforestation or, or whatever? So I think we're providing something pretty amazing for basically no additional cost. And, and I think we've taken the view that rather than kind of trying to make a premium on the product, we'd prefer to have a, a better product at the same price because I think in the long term that, that will change the market. Well, that's amazing. And that is what doing things with purpose and intentionality, these kind of words that get bandied around, but 
that's doing that with some real substance. I think that's very admirable. Let's talk a bit about then the future. You said that you're preoccupied almost with like what might come next and the need to innovate. What does that actually look like? I guess you presumably, Charlie, have to travel quite a lot, both to, you know, boots on the ground to see what's happening and that people are delivering on what they are undertaking, but also just to be inspired and find best practice. Is that about retaining a sense of curiosity that I think from talking to you briefly, you clearly have? How do you ensure that you're being exposed to new ideas, that you're not going to miss a trick and that you can continue to be in, in the vanguard in this space? Yeah, I'm sure I miss lots of tricks, but I think... Um... <laughs> Yeah, I think it's about, as you say, staying curious. I love, you know, absolutely love visiting projects, visiting manufacturers. I was recently in Bangkok talking to some of the bigger jewellery manufacturers, trying to persuade them with a degree of success that this is the way forward. And, you know, attending conferences and debates, I think you do have to stay pretty plugged in because it's a, it's quite a fast-moving space. I think ESG and sustainability is a an extremely hot topic across not just the jewellery trade, but every industry. And I think, you know, for SMO, we aren't just looking at the jewellery industry. We're very interested in the sort of financial side of gold as well, whether that's physical investment products or we're currently looking at whether we can establish um, an exchange-traded fund sort of physically backed by known provenance, responsibly sourced gold, because I think there's absolutely appetite for, for that in a financial market as well. Well, not wishing to appoint you as the sort of delegated answerer for your whole your whole <laughs> business, but where there is resistance or where there are laggards, where the pace of change or just the interest in having the conversation isn't there, what do you put that down to? Is it because I guess one of the big challenges will be short termism, both in you know some corporate appointments, maybe you know, certain CEOs or chairman of companies might only have a one to three to five year time horizon and some of these big changes need generational kind of investment don't they mm. but also on a government level that is the same is true and it's quite hard to talk about how this can change an area or best practice over a 25 year time horizon if you're talking to a minister who mm. knows they've got 18 months on the clock are those some of the problems short-termism or are there other things actually which impede the sharing of this best practice more broadly yeah, look, I think short-termism is a problem. I think everyone is resistant to change. People have their ways of working and, you know, persuading them to change it is always a challenge. So, I, you know, my view is if the proposition is good enough and appealing enough, you can change people's minds and that's the way we have to work. And I don't underestimate the difficulty of that change for particularly as you have, you know, bigger brands. Mm. It's lovely to say, We'd love to adopt one origin, but it's not that easy for them. They have to do a lot of legwork to do it. But what's great is they're starting to get pressure from their customers to make those changes. So I think that will drive change as much as me saying you should be doing it this way because it's better, it's more responsible. And it's ultimately, I think there's an alignment in lots of industries between kind of doing the right thing and doing the more profitable thing. I think it's a, it's quite a nice nuance of the way consumerism seems to be moving in the UK and probably the US and then Europe is suddenly brands who are, I don't know, B Corp certified or really engaging with their supply chains or trying to give something back. I think they're succeeding because of that, because it's what more and more kind of millennial consumers want. Well, that's interesting. So do you think that the consumer can be the driver of change alone or, or do we need more progressive producers, policymakers, etc. in the space? Or do you think the consumer alone will drag 
even those kind of slow coaches up by their by their steps. It's hard to say. Maybe maybe the consumer alone can drive it, but I think you know if you include investors as well. So mm. I think investors are driving. You know where you have funds that have really clear ESG criteria for who they'll invest in. A big mining business, for example, will sit up and listen if they're saying, well, we're not going to invest in your shares unless you are meeting these kind of responsibility standards. So I think investors and consumers can have a a huge influence. But it's a bit like brands who adopted fair trade and fair mine quite a while back. I think you have some pioneering brands who also help push in the other direction. And that's really important too, that you have jewelers who are happy to and prepared to educate their customers. Customers aren't necessarily walking through the door saying, I want fair trade, I want single mine origin, and where did this product come from? But you have certain jewellers who are actually kind of pushing that as part of their pitch. So I think it has to come from from both sides. Just quickly, to sort of turn this thing around, yeah. on this idea about preconceived ideas, certainly you know, big mining players, they're constantly getting beaten up in the press, <laughs> often perfectly leg- legitimately yeah. and correctly. Is that ever a source of frustration, Charlie, when, you know, if you literally, maybe you're starting a conversation with somebody, and if you say that you're a refiner or you, you talk about mining people kind of want to stop the conversation there because they kind of have this super negative perception about mm. the whole industry presumably that is annoying but is it a problem because sometimes we can't even get into the discussion because people are so binary about it they're so black and white this this is a bad industry yeah that actually we, we're not having some of the conversations that could move the needle quite meaningfully just because people aren't willing to have a discussion yeah, look, I think some people are closed-minded and some people you will never be able to persuade. And and some people, you know, I can respect that where they'll say, you know, we shouldn't be digging up gold, we should only be using recycled, it's far more sustainable. If that's your position, I understand that. My view has always been, if you look at gold supply in the world, it's 75% mined, to ignore that 75% and not try and change it and make sure it's done in the sort of best way possible is crazy as far as I'm concerned because that gold will become the recycled gold of tomorrow you know that was one of the major drivers of setting up single mine origin that's what Dan has gone from an explorer to having gone through that whole process of building a mine and spending you know 100 million dollars on the ground building the Anfalila mine in Mali and I've been there and I'm unbelievably proud of the impact it's had and if you look at that you know, you're talking about one of the poorest areas in the world with the worst health outcomes in the world. And if you look at the kind of change in education, infrastructure, health outcomes around that mine and alternative livelihoods they're investing in, you know, that is something to be proud of. And and like I say, some of these big mining companies, the more progressive ones, they are engaged with the impact they're having and and the legacy they're going to leave behind. And so let's not paint all big minds with this brush that they're all evil and they're all exploitative when actually these are really important impacts that they're achieving and they, they're working in difficult areas. And I'm not going to pretend these regimes in West Africa are all perfect, but in a way that's exactly why we should be working there because mm. that's where you're going to make a difference to a lot of lives. Um, Charlie, I could talk to you all day. What are you most excited about? What's coming next? Is it the next new product? Is it about getting out into the world and seeing the impact of a decision that you and your brother might have made around a meeting room table somewhere? What what kind of gets you springing out of bed from day to day? I'm excited about lots. I'm excited. I'm really excited for the pace of change with SMO. We're we're going very fast. It feels hard to keep up sometimes, but 
like I said earlier, I feel like we're pushing on some open doors, which is really gratifying. Personally, I'm excited. I'm going out to Guinea Hummingbird are opening their Carusa mine there, the official openings next month. So I'm going to that, which will be really cool. And we're looking at some partnership work with Boodles, the jeweler, to look at investment in some kind of medical interventions in the community around there, which I think is a lovely kind of virtuous circle of that collaboration between the miner and single one origin and the jeweler. And again, I think if that works, we'll end up being able to evidence real meaningful change. So that excites me. That was Charlie Betts, the managing director of the Betts Group and co-founder of SMO Gold. You can learn more by heading to singlemineorigin.com and read more about the wider group at bettsmetals.com. That's it for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out for Eureka on Friday in the meantime. The Entrepreneurs was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. You can follow us and catch up with the archive of past programmes via your preferred podcast platform or, of course, at monocle.com. To contact the team, email Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.